Well, I couldn't think of a better song for the book of Ecclesiastes than that song. May, my hope is, is by the end of the series that God will train us as a people that no matter what our lot is, we'll be people be able to say it as well with our soul. That's our hope in this series. And you know, as humans, we, we struggle with the fact that inside of us there's a sense that something is missing or something is wrong or something is broken that needs to be fixed. And we live in a time, and not only a time, a world, any time it's been, that the world is full of difficulties and pain, full of unfairness and injustices. And it does something to us. We, we kind of come out of it feeling a little bit uh, discouraged and depressed and just joyless. Our hope in his Ecclesiastes that we can learn as we introduced the book last week, we came away as we looked at the big picture of the whole book, and we learned three uh, ways to summarize this book, to look at it that really addresses this whole issue. And the first one is we saw that uh, lasting significance. I'll make sure it gets up there for you guys first. Lasting significance is only found in God, not in this world. So brother said to me this week, the problem is, is the world can't provide it. <laughs> and people are constantly, even Christians, thinking somehow if I just get more of what the world has to offer, then I'm going to feel I'm going to be full of joy and feel like there's meaning to my life. And the problem is, is the world can't provide it, only God can. We also saw this. Life is not a puzzle to solve, but a gift to enjoy. That theme runs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as we see over and over again. Uh, just the fact that saying, man just can't get it. He just doesn't see it. He, he just can't understand it. But what he does tell us is, is don't try to figure it out. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. And so when we summarize this whole book, when we summarize the conclusion of what he comes to, this whole series is about fearing God and enjoying life. But you know, this whole feeling of meaningless and valuelessness and, uh, you know, the, the seeming missing of significance to life is captured in a word that is used over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, it's used 22 times and it actually uh, encloses in brackets the book and it's the word vanity. Look at, look at uh, open up if you're not there already to chapter one, the very first two verses. Just set that there for now. The very two, first two verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We know that was Solomon. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's where he opens up the book, and that's where he starts with this whole discussion. Now I want you to turn to the last chapter, chapter 12. Verse 8. He finished this discussion about remembering God before it's too late. 
And then we come to the end where he says in verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Man dies. And then he says this, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Then he moves into his conclusion and his findings. You know, vanity simply means this. It's a vapor or a breath. When I say breath, that's what I'm talking about. It's a vapor or breath that disappears quickly. That's what the word literally means in the Hebrew. And it's reinforced in this book um, nine other times by this phrase called chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to do that, by the way? Try it for 15 minutes, you'll understand what vanity means. Go out on the next windy day, chase after the wind, try to catch some and bring some home, put it in your aquarium and keep it. You can't do it. It's totally frustrating. And that's what he's trying to indicate to us. Look at verse 14 in chapter 1. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Look at down at verse 17. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after wind. So really, 31 times in this book, between calling something vain or calling it like striving after wind, he emphasizes the uselessness, the meaninglessness, the worthlessness, the futility, the frustration, and as we saw last week in particular, of man's works and man's wisdom. You know, the surface reading of the book, you can't help but say, everything man does is, is meaningless. It's useless. But when you take the book as a whole, and you, you know, again, we have to be careful with every book of the Bible. Take it as a whole. Be careful about taking a verse out of context without the verses that come before it. And by the way, you know that a paragraph makes a complete thought, not a verse. So you've got to keep in the context of the paragraph. And the paragraph is working with the paragraphs above that. So you've got to keep everything in context because that chapter is in the context of the chapter before and after, which is the context. You follow me? It's the whole book. And so we've got to be careful about pulling a verse out and building our whole thinking upon a particular verse. But rather when we take the book as a whole and we let Scripture balance out Scripture, then we realize that he's really speaking relatively about the value and the meaning of man's works and man's wisdom. What I mean by this when I say relatively, when you take man's works and man's wisdom, and then you take God's eternal purposes and what he's doing in this world and his works and his wisdom, and you put the two up against each other, this one is so insignificant compared to it that it seems worthless. 
Let me give you another illustration of that. In the New Testament, when you read in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had glory. But the glory of the new covenant so far surpasses the glory of the old covenant, it's like the old covenant doesn't have glory. And that's what he's doing here in the book of Ecclesiastes. I guess the simple illustration I would use is if this room was dark, totally pitch black, and I held up just a 10-watt light bulb right here. Everybody, even in the last row, be able to see that because it gives off light. But if the room is still dark and this 10-watt light bulb is on, then all of a sudden behind that bulb I put a 1,000-watt light bulb. <laughs> Guess what? You can't even see the light that's coming from the 10 watts. And so when we take this book in context and let Scripture bear Scripture, we see speaking relatively that when man takes his work in his wisdom and takes it separate from God, the value of this, it's compared to what comes from God, is just very insignificant. Let me show you that from Scripture. Let's look in Ecclesiastes. Look at back at verse 14 of chapter 1. And I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. So here we got it. All of man's works, I've seen it. And you know what? It's all vanity and striving after wind. Turn to chapter 2. Verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. Now he's taking his personal activities of what he's done, not just seeing all the works that man does. Now I'm talking about my works, my activities, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Look at down at verse 22 and verse 23. Chapter 2. For what does a man get in all his labor and in the striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Now some people would say case is closed. We got it. That's what the Bible says. This is all vanity. But when we let Scripture balance out Scripture, let the whole book, we've got we've to say there's more to it than that. Because look at the very next verse, what he says in, uh, here in chapter 2, in verse 24. These, this is the refrains we looked at last week. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Well, which is it? Is it useless and meaningless or is it good? Now we got attention here. But what we see here is God gives man the gift of being able to see good in his work. And next week we're going to see this as we look at chapter 3. Uh, we'll see this a little bit more fuller, but for today, we need to understand that there's a balance here in this book because on the one hand, as he's looking at what man does, it seems meaningless, 
but, when, but God gives man the ability to see something good in his work, and we'll see what that is next week. Turn to chapter 3. We'll see this again. Verse 12. After that great section, talks about there's a time for everything. And that God has made beautiful, everything beautiful in its time. That's what we're going to speak of next week. He says this in verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, in addition to that, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. Chapter 3, verse 22. I've seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy in his activities, for this is his lot. So here we got this tension in this book. On one hand, we got man's works and wisdoms that seem useless and vain and uh, empty. And on the other hand, we have God giving man the gift to be able to see in his works the good that's being accomplished. And so what I believe that to understand the book of Ecclesiastes properly, we got to hold those in tension and recognize much like the old covenant had glory. But when you put it up against the new covenant, the glory so surpasses it that, that the glory of the old seems like there's none at all. And for when it comes man's works here in this world and you put it up against what God's doing, it seems useless. But what we see in the truth here is, is that there is good in what we do. And we're going to see that in depth next week. I hope you'll be with us. If not, join us online but we have to understand next week to understand this book and to understand that everything God is doing is beautiful and he's using us to do it. That's what the book is teaching us. And we have to hold that tension in place. So if you're going to try, and people don't necessarily that know Jesus intentionally try, sometimes we get distracted, <laughs> Uh, we get deceived. To find our meaning and our joy and our purpose in this world and what this world offers, which at its best, we learn in Hebrews 11 that uh, Moses chose not to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. Yes, sin is pleasurable, but it's not healthy. It's a sick pleasure. <laughs> and, but there's a pleasure and it's temporary. And the, what the world has to offer, Jesus offers a peace, not like the world offers, but a peace that comes from him. The peace that the world offers is conditional upon our circumstances being good, and then I feel good. But Jesus is able to do what he did for Horatio and he could do for us, that no matter what our lot is, whether our circumstances are good or bad, in Jesus... It can be well with our soul because we have a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that comes from Jesus, a peace that the world doesn't know. The best the world could do, as we learn in the book of Ecclesiastes, is like a breath. I do one breath, 
it's gone quickly, then I go on to the next. And some people are finding themselves running from one person, one pleasure, one position, one possession to the next, trying to squeeze meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment out of those, and they last this long. And it kind of, all of a sudden it's gone. Uh, Den Georgeopoulos sent me a video I watched yesterday uh, of a valedictorian in a high school class. And he gave a speech because he said the last year, the only thing he could think of was becoming the valedictorian. And he said that for a year, you know, he sacrificed everything and he got it. And he became the valedictorian. And he said, I sat down afterwards and I had this big cape they gave him and everything after he received it. And he said, for about 15 seconds, it felt great. But on the 16th second, he said, I sacrificed all these relationships and all this fun and all these things just for this. His challenge to everybody is the 16th second comes. And that's what happens in the world. It does give some excitement and some fulfillment and some joy for a moment, for a breath, compared to eternity. But then it's gone. Then I gotta find something else to fill it. So what we see here is, is that vanity and what this world offers is a key problem for man and only in God, only in Jesus, only being rightly related to him do we find that deep, down, lasting meaning, value, significance, and joy. And so when we go to the end of the book, turn over to chapter 12. Verse 13, the conclusion. Remember, he's doing a study like a scientist on life to find out what brings lasting value and meaning to life. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to everyone, every person when he takes all of life and he sees everything that man has done and everything that God has done, this is his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because, note that word because, key word, gives us the reason why. Why, why is this the conclusion to fear God and keep his commandments? Because this applies to every person is what my New American Standard says. I'm not sure what your version says, but I know what the Hebrew says. This is the whole of man. As we saw last week, Walter Kaiser says it this way. This is the mannishness of man and the womanness of woman. This is what you were created for. This is what you were made for. This is the core of who we are, to be rightly related to God. That's what brings lasting joy and fulfillment and meaning to our lives. And the New Testament 
You know, this truth we see throughout the whole Bible. Look at Colossians 1.16 in the New Testament. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things, and by the way, that includes you and me, all things have been created through him and for him. You and I have been created for the very purpose for a relationship with Jesus. And if you want to find the sweet spot in your life where everything is clicking, this is where I find meaning, this is where I find value, this is where I find joy, this is where I find peace, it's only when you're rightly related to Jesus because this is the whole of man, this is the whole of woman, this is what we were created for. Jesus is the missing piece of the puzzle. Jesus is the missing piece of the heart. And when you feel like something's missing, you're not gonna find it in more religion, you're not gonna find it in doing more good deeds, you're not gonna find it in uh, being more moral, you're gonna find it in Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we have people at the end of the service that would love to talk to you, talk to whoever invited you, talk to me. But here's the problem. Man, because of sin of Adam, he was our parents and we were born with his spiritual DNA. So we have a problem called sin within our lives. And sin separates man from God. And that sin is so serious that the penalty of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But that's why Jesus came, because God so loved the world, God so loved you, that he sent his only begotten son, and he went to the cross, and he shed his blood and gave his life to die for you and me to deal with the sin problem. Then he goes on to say that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When we transfer our trust from myself and anything I can do, from how much I can go to church, how religious I can be, how moral I can be, how many good deeds I can do, when I transfer my trust from that, or even from that sense that, man, I've been so bad, there's no hope for me because God there is nobody who can be outside of God's grace and forgiveness. And you move from that way of thinking and put it all in the fact that Jesus did it all. All to him I owe. And when I lean into him and I rely upon what he did rather than what I can do, at that moment we receive Jesus into our hearts. Matter of fact, we get a brand new heart that wants to walk with Jesus. And then he comes in our hearts and he starts to work on us to make us the kind of people that walk the way he wants us to walk. And so guess what? The missing piece is a person. It's Jesus. And as we walk rightly related to Jesus, even as believers throughout our life, then we find this kind of joy. Now here's the problem with believers. If you're here today, again, and you don't know Jesus I'd encourage you to settle it today. But here's the problem with a lot of believers. 
if they're honest with themselves, they're saying, I gotta be honest with you, I, I trusted Jesus, I know he's living in my life, but I still kinda feel joyless, meaningless. My life doesn't seem to have value, I'm kinda lost. I think it's a picture, I think that's symptoms that show us that there's still something, I'm not saying you don't have Jesus, don't misunderstand me, but there's something in my relationship with Jesus that's not rightly related. Because when we're right, rightly related to him, when we're fearing him and respecting him and worshiping him and obeying him, the whole of man is connecting, the sweet spot's working with Jesus. And when we start to look at the world, our circumstances, our disappointments, trying to find answers to everything, if we're even as Christians looking out there to find the solution, rather than trusting in Jesus and what we learn in this book, I can't understand everything everyhow. It's too much, it's too, as I've said often, it's bigger than I'm smart. And when I rely upon Jesus, I think of a house to illustrate this. We came to know Jesus. The house, by the way, is representing our life, okay? My entire life is the house. And when I first trusted Jesus, for me that was in the Marine Corps, as I said this morning to Carson. It's when I came to know Jesus. And Jesus came into my house. That's what the Bible taught me. And you know what happened, guys? I was full of joy at that time. I was full of peace. I was excited. I mean, I, I had a party, party in my heart, party with those around me that I, I told about Jesus and, and that happened. And to be honest with you, I gave Jesus a guest room in my house. He was there. And I gave him a very nice room. I gave him the best guest room I had. We had the finest food, fellowship. Revelation 3, come dine with me. You know, it's really fellowshipping with Jesus. He's talking to the church. And so here I, I was having great fellowship with Jesus. I was reading his word, uh, and I, he was speaking to me through his word. I was praying back to him. I was talking to him. We had a real good thing going. He helped me with the things I was trying to get done in my life. If, uh, using the house illustration, you know, I had plans. I wanted to remodel some things, and I had Jesus as a helper to help me remodel things. He was in the house, he was a vital part, I was full of joy. But you know what can happen to us? We get busy, or we get distracted. We get distracted by things outside the house, that's what the world has to offer. And all of a sudden, those things look really good. Or I find myself getting so busy with the responsibilities of life that I have, that no longer do I stop to talk to Jesus. And I no longer listen to him through his word. Matter of fact, I've been away from him so long that I've put him in a closet downstairs and I close the door. There's no more fellowship with Jesus. He's downstairs in the closet. Be honest with you, when I go throughout my day and I feel like I never even take thought that Jesus is there. Totally forgot about him. He's still there, but he's no longer a vital part of my life. He's not helping me with anything in my life, and my whole life is built around what I want. 
but it seems like the joy is just diminishing day by day in the meaning and the value. Again, I don't know if everybody's there, but there's people here today that I know have got to be there. Here's your need. It's in Romans 12, 1. Listen to this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren and sistren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, to present your house, to present your entire life. My body represents Pat Peglo and everything that's connected with it. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Let me tell you what your need is if you're struggling at this level today as a believer. Your need is not to go downstairs and let Jesus out of the closet, even though you do need to let him out of the closet. And your need is not just to put him back in the guest room where he's got a special place in your life and just start talking to him every day. This is what the real need is at this point. This is a one-time decision for Christians. Much like we come to Jesus at some point in our life, I did back there in 1972, January. But at some point later on in my life, I made this decision. I went downstairs through the files of my life and I found the title deed to my house, the title deed to my life and I presented it to Jesus. Guess what, Jesus is no longer the guest. He's now the owner. I'm the guest. It's no longer about Jesus helping me with the things that I want, but rather it's now me becoming a servant and building my life to help further myself in what Jesus wants. Much like that decision I made in the Marine Corps, I'm gonna spend, the, you know, I spent enough of my life wasting it, using other people, uh, taking from people, that I wanted to spend the rest of my life investing in things that count for eternity. And that's what we're saying, God, I'm all yours. I'm presenting myself to you. Guess what, now it's no longer my remodeling plans, which I'm asking you to help me with, now it's your remodeling plans for Pat Peglo's life. I'm giving you permission to come in and change my desires, change my appetites, change my affections, change the way I think. Lord, I'm opening it all up to you. This is your house now. This is your place and I'm giving it to you. And brothers and sisters, there's some Christians that have never done that. And there's some that have that even though Jesus is the owner, they're still living like they're the owner. To be rightly related to Jesus, we need to fear him. That means to deeply respect him. Honor him for who he is. Worship him as God. Give him the place in my life as God. That's what it means to fear God. But when you fear him, and that's why he says fear God and keep his commandments, when you fear him, like that, guess what happens? It changes the way I live. You see, a kind of fear of God says, oh yeah, I believe God's God, and yeah, he, he's all that, yeah, yeah. No, I'm talking about the kind that so enters into my life that it changes everything about me.
So brothers and sisters, you know, Romans 12, 1 comes after the first 11 chapters of Romans that talks about how God saved us from the wrath and the penalty that sin brings in our life. And even Jesus saved us from the power of sin in our daily lives today. And this is the natural response to that in Romans 1. Therefore, that's what therefore is there for. That's the, that's the conclusion. This is the logical conclusion of what comes before. Whenever I see, I guess I'm in the Bible study methods mode because that's what we're teaching today, second hour. But therefore is a key word because all of a sudden I see this is the logical conclusion of everything that's come before it. And so what we see now, the logical conclusion for you and me as believers because of what Jesus did for me on the cross is to give him all that I am. He gave all that he is for me. I need to give all that I am to him and give him the right to do whatever he wants to do with my life, starting on the inside in a way that he transforms us so deeply that it comes out on the outside. So I just encourage you this morning, consider where is Jesus in your house? Is he in the guest room? Is he down in the closet? Or is he the owner? And are you living like he's the owner? Because you know, the best way I can illustrate that is Kim and I got married many years ago. I wish I could tell you how many years those were, but it was many years ago. I just can't remember, baby, I'm sorry. We got married on one day, but guess what? When I woke up the next day, everything changed in the way I think about my life, and I lived my life different. I didn't live like a single man anymore. <laughs> you see, and every morning after that, because of that decision, I live my life like a married man because of that one-time decision. And some believers made that one-time decision with Jesus, but they're still not living like a person who's presented it all to Jesus. Brothers, sisters, I don't know where you're at today. I just want to give you a moment before Josh closes up. Take a moment before the Lord say, God, show me. You know, maybe, maybe we are so caught in the muck and mire we can't see it. Show me where you are in my life and what I need to do to make you the owner. Or if you've been the owner and I've been living like I've been the owner, to get things back rightly related where I'm fearing him and obeying him. So just take a moment, reflect on that. Lord, I, I just want to pray. This is a simple message, no deep truths. But my prayer is that you go deep in our hearts with each one of us. And Lord, with the Holy Spirit, shine the light of his truth, Lord, about where we're at with Jesus on us this morning. Let us see clearly. And Lord, give us the grace to do what we gotta do. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.